Okay, cool. All right, Monday morning, and we are here to talk about La Llorona. <laughs> and uh, we've all seen it, and we were excited because finally we had, like, we had a Latinx kind of mainstream film out there, not just The Conjurer and all that stuff, but we actually had our own stuff going, right? So mm. I want to just kind of open it, and then we'll just jam it. Okay, so let me let me just get some like initial reactions, and you know maybe we can go a little more deeper. So why don't we, uh, Katie? Why don't we you jump us in here? Sure. I mean, I guess my first reaction when I realized that they selected like Velma from Scooby Doo as the protagonist, as I was like, they kind of took the easy way out in terms of thinking about her name is Ana Garcia. Right. But her married last name is Garcia. And when you look at her IMDb, like the name of the character is Anna Tate. And it was interesting to me to see that we have this mixed race Latinx family that I was excited about. But it felt very much like, why is the Mexican father dead before the movie even begins? And we have this white protagonist who very much is the center of the film. And for so much of the film, to me, it felt like almost the moral of the story was like brown people are scary and her suspicions about brown people are being confirmed throughout. And that just kind of gave me this really gross feeling in my stomach the whole time of like, what am I actually watching? So you're actually thinking that the film, because it doesn't mark her as white, right? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like sh- they want her to pass yes. as Latinx. Oh, I think yeah, they very purposely, yeah. Yeah, do you want to s- jump in here, yeah. Danielle? Um, I, you know, I, I, when the film started, I was really interested in thinking about the mixed race family as well and seeing the two little brown kids at the beginning of the film uh, that are uh, Patricia's kids. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking that the film would do more with them, but of course they perish within the first mm-hmm. 10, 15 minutes of the film. And then the sort of film shifts to thinking about, uh, you know, the white passing protagonist and her children. And, I, you know, in terms of thinking about class, I think that's interesting mm-hmm. in terms of at the beginning of the film, we see the kids uh, that are living in this tenement housing with Patricia, and then they're killed off within the first 10 to 15 minutes. And then we uh, move into the suburbs, a mm-hmm. place that's supposed to be safe. Um, Katie, do you, do you have thoughts about this as well? Yeah, I mean, like, right, historically, the suburbs are marketed as safe for white people, right? If we think back to, like, white flight and the creation of the suburbs as this way in which, you know, the urban center is considered, like, scarier because people of color are residing there and that white folks are encouraged, especially given their history of of accessing these bank loans that allow them to qualify for mortgages to move into these new suburban thriving economies. I mean, it doesn't feel coincidental to me that Anna is living in sort of this big, like, American dream style suburb urban house and you've got Patricia living in this apartment that very much is kind of situated in contrast. Mm -hmm. Carlos, what do you think? Yeah, I was um, just like the the political climate that we're in, right? Like what types of Latinx people are okay, right? In regards, okay in quotes around that. Um, That the, the white passing woman, right? We're supposed to read her as white passing that it's her pain that matters, her fears that matter. And so when she's the one sort of talking about La Llorona, right, that she's more like people believe her, mm-hmm. people believe that something's wrong. Um, they take her pain seriously, whereas, uh, was it Patricia? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, darker skinned, right, working class, sort of uh, representative of that divide between working class Latinx and sort of more wealthy middle class mm-hmm. Latinx, right? Um, and sort of how her pain gets ignored. Right, that she doesn't even, you know, register as, uh, 
you know, someone that's that you can have confidence in what she's saying, right? Um, and the fact that her two children are killed while in custody, mm-hmm. uh, right? That they're under protective custody. Mm-hmm. That just smacks of, of what's happening at the border right now, mm-hmm. right? Through government you, officials, right, right? That you have these government officials supposedly, you know, that you're in their hands and that's supposed to be sort of safe, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but they end up dying immediately. So that, that sort of struck me as... Uh, you know, it's pointing to those moments, right? The the the, the political moments of our time, right? Um, whether audiences can read that as somehow subversive, mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't know um, because a lot of, I think a lot of them are, are like that uh, white passing mom who asks, you know, what is La Llorona? Mm-hmm. So it's like they don't even know that, or maybe the ideal audience is us mm-hmm. and maybe it is us and it doesn't need to be hitting us over the head mm-hmm. yeah right so i mean it was made for nine million it's made ni- almost 90 million at the box office um wow. which is pr- like hugely successful right mm-hmm. michael chavez the director um i think what you guys might be getting at though is um and i hate to do this but you have two non-latinxes who wrote the screenplay yes. right um, and there's a couple of things I wanted to throw out there for you guys, maybe to complicate things. So Katie and Danny, you talked about kind of the safety of the suburban whiteness and class. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, though, that actually there's some tricks that are going on because it looks to me, especially with the way the the crane shot and then we have a kind of um, – um, we pull out and we see like actually Echo Park mm-hmm. that you have a trick happening where you have what we might see more as a suburban like big house actually in mm-hmm. the heart of like you know East LA mm-hmm. and like what does that mean too mm-hmm. in terms of abracadabra and you know a white passing character passing for latinx but within the safety of middle classness that comes as a result of the death of her latinx husband Mm -hmm. because clearly Mm -hmm. it's her the pension that's like helping there right yes um so yeah there's all sorts of really kind of complex layers right yeah did you guys katie i know you want to jump in here yeah, I just like I said, I mean, I mean Linda Cardellini, right, is a white actress and I think something I'm always critical of is why is it that even when we do have films that are arguably attempting to center Latinx characters that we still tend to have a white protagonist is almost the selling point. And for me, I was thinking a lot about the fact that she is recognizable in the sense that she's done other roles like Legally Blonde and she's going to be recognizable to an audience, I think, in the same way that it seems purposeful to me that the costumes and the time period seems to be selected in kind of a nostalgia type grab. I think that there are a lot of directors who are seeing the success of things like Stranger Things and Chilling Adventures of Sabrina and Riverdale and seeing those kinds of shows having the ability to pull in a younger audience. And so part of me wonders if it's a way to kind of move between the, the younger and the older audience. But I think there's definitely 
markings that tell us that indeed it's the husband's pension that sort of funds this venture where she's able to live kind of in this secluded way. And I think that that also plays into then later on in the film when we see the other caseworkers sort of giving her a pass when there's these markings of violence on the children's bodies that they say, like, we'll handle it in a way that Patricia doesn't benefit from that same kind of um, forgiveness based on where she's living. And I think that that matters both in terms of their appearances, but also their government like sort of the, the different ways that the government reads them in terms of affiliated with the law or not, but also just like the fact that, you know, that she can pass as this person who's sort of considered arguably morally upright. Mm-hmm. Danny, what do you think? Yeah, yeah um, I, I'm thinking a lot about location. So filming on location like places at Echo Park. And when I think about uh, Echo Park appearing in other films, uh, reminds me of uh, I remember a scene in Locas when the there's a, one of the young women who's involved in uh, a gang. She's there with her baby and then her other friends. Uh, so it becomes like a, a, a cultural hub in some ways. And so thinking about Echo Park as setting. But then I also think about, as a resident from Los Angeles, how Echo Park, the name, just with the name, it's changed a lot over the last 10, 15 years. So Echo Park, I know some people... Back in the day, we're like, oh, you know, Echo Park, it's kind of hood. But now, um, we know, which has all kinds of class markings associated with that kind of terminology. But then now, when we think of Echo Park, I, you know, I hear of like hipsters like, oh, I'm going to move out to Echo Park. So there's all this gentrification happening and people moving into these areas to, uh, you know, restore old homes or but then also pushing residents out who can't afford to live there anymore. So I, I feel like the the setting of Echo Park has changed a lot where mm. it once used to be sort of a, a cultural hub and, um, and, and even in some ways for a lot of, uh, for some Latinx communities, you know, a space where you could go and hang out. Um, now it's becoming heavily gentrified. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. a lot about, you know, Los Angeles and, and Los Angeles as background uh, because in, in many ways it's uh, set for, it's a, a hub for filmmaking processes. And so that's what I'm mm-hmm. thinking about. That's right really now. interesting because if you think about how we're only finally left with the sense that we are supposed to be in a Latinx uh, community and neighborhood Mm -hmm. at the very end when we kind of pull out and have that Mm -hmm. extreme long shot. Um, It's like the safe, the safe space of East LA now kind of um, it's okay now to represent it, even though it's set in 1973 Mm we're mm-hmm. filming this in 20 you know in the 21st century and like you said gentrification um almost like anna uh, as a kind of first person in that space to start mm-hmm. gentrifying right totally. our community and our neighborhood i don't know carlos what's what's up yeah so thinking about you know what really interests me is how sort of um what is it, the the white protagonist right the uh, the woman what's her name anna Anna, right? Mm-hmm. Um, again, just thinking about class distinctions and sort of how the um, the suburban space, even though it's located probably in the heart of East LA, um, what are the implications of having a white uh, female body in that space, mm-hmm. um, and sort of painting it as um, as a, of like we made it kind of thing? Um, whereas, you know, contrast to, to Patricia, right? She's being watched for four years, mm-hmm. right? So there's this voyeurism attached to her body, um, you know, making sure that, um, you know, that she's not drinking again, where the, the very next scene we see uh, Anna downing a bottle of wine, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's no, there's no nothing. There. There's no, 
we don't miss a beat, right? But the the comparison is right that you have a darker female Latinx who is um, being deemed irresponsible for drinking, whereas we have this space, right, this suburban home, uh, or maybe even just modeled after a suburban home, right? But that space provides a, a sort of safety for drinking, right? That this suburban mom doesn't need to worry about that, that it's okay for her to drink. Um, and then also contrast that too with child protective services coming mm-hmm. both their houses, right? That we have Patricia, you know, her kids are just taken away, right? Where Anna actually gets to be in the room for mm-hmm. the majority of the session uh, of interviewing the children or her children. And then they finally kick her out, mm-hmm. right? But she's still safe. You know, there's no real, I didn't, I never thought they were going to take her kids away. I just never thought that, um, you know, and so contrast that with the first scene where they take Ana Patricia or Patricia's kids away. So it's just like, you know, heavy so juxtaposition there. I want to move us to kind of talking more also now about kind of masculinities um, and mm. sort of the male bodies and um, interesting, right, that we have. Uh, you know Raymond Cruz mm-hmm. playing the curandero, mm-hmm. and I like that because in the past we've seen him. What you know, you guys know mm-hmm. your TV Training and everything. Day. Yeah, Breaking and Bad Breaking and Bad, <laughs> right? Drug Lord and what have you. So yeah, but in contrast with the priest. So again, we're having a kind of you know a kind of blanquito and a, mm-hmm. you know more more of a mestizo. Um, but anyway, maybe what are you guys thinking about that, Carlos? Yeah, yeah. Can I just jump in there? Like, uh, so um, when the when the priest is talking to Anna about like the curandero, mm-hmm. like we're supposed to make we're, we're made to feel fear, right? That the curandero is a scary person, um, and and you really just like the priest looks at Anna and then says, "He's a curandero," like, and, and it's like boom. Zoom in on his face, right? And we're supposed to be scared, right? And so that to me started, you know, thinking about like how, you know, Western practices of medicine, right, look down on alternative types of medicines, right? That, you know, curandero and curanderas are seen as scary other, right? And then we kind of get that also with the husband who's like put on a pedestal, police officer, great representation with quotes around it, right? Because it's not really representation, but it's just there. That he's sort of this angelic figure. And then we get the switch with the curandero, who's been made to feel scary. Uh, and also, you know, the whole abacadabra thing makes me feel like like he's there for entertainment, like right? Tada, I think yeah, so that the buffoonish kind of aspect that we see with a lot of Latinx masculinity, um, that even, you know, it does provide comedic relief in those moments, but. You know, it's it's sort of the expectation that he's there as a as a sort of magician, entertainer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, to kind of piggyback off of what you were talking about in terms of like putting the husband uh, on the pedestal, he's a police officer, so he was involved with law enforcement, and so uh, and there seems to be the film seems to be even though the father figure is absent in the film, he seems to still be very much sort of involved in terms of like memory mm-hmm. uh, and. And sort of praising, you know, him and, you know, through the picture frame on the mantle kind of narrative. And I think, I mean, it's interesting that he is in law enforcement or wasn't law enforcement because, you know, and how that 
I mean, in thinking about Latinx communities, you know, there's sort of division on uh, Latinx being in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, what is their role, uh, in, in especially at the border? And so it seems interesting to have him sort of occupying a position of, of um, sort of law enforcement when I think at a time right now, uh, you know, people feel very divided about how law enforcement are interacting with communities of color. Uh, yeah, and it's almost like good you can be absolutely good if you are dead mm-hmm. as a Latinx yep. police officer, yeah. right? There's no, mm-hmm. you know, that that's how he exists as a kind of symbol of absolute kind of goodness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the only way in mainstream representation, other than being corrupt mm-hmm. as a police officer or mm-hmm. compulsive masturbator in the case of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, punch in blue chips. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, Katie, what do you have to think? Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, so on the father's picture is a pendant of St. Michael. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's St. Michael. And I was just talking to my mom about this last night because like my mom, who is Catholic, prays to St. Michael to ward off evil or like to like pray for like help or support. And I think that that's significant too, that like, it was interesting because I thought that St. Michael would, would sort of appear more in the film given that Anna at one point rubs the pendant and kind of holds on to it when she's sort of seeking solace in the husband's image. Um, And that feels significant in terms of her also kind of seeking support from Father Perez um, Mm. because he also is the one, and it's a line that is kind of just like burned into my brain, but he makes this comment when he's talking about Raphael and says, um, you know, he's left the caller or the calling one of the two, which already situates him as sort of this like, person who's left the practice and therefore sort of almost queered in some way that he's no longer aligned with sort of the sanctity of the church. But then on top of that, he says, like, he's operating on the fringes of religion and science. So we already have an association between religion and science with sort of being these accepted modes of of sort of higher thinking. Mm -hmm. And that curanderos, therefore, somehow can't exist in that same space. And that really struck me then that it, it felt purposeful that we almost are situated and encouraged to believe that like these key men in Anna's life, even though she's not a practicing Catholic, presumably that she feels so much more comfort and almost like a possibility of seeking solace in the Catholic church and in the deceased husband in a way that sort of aligns them as being almost these like traditional Mexican masculinities, mm-hmm. because it also seems to be that there's a connection between the two that doesn't exist with Raphael. Yeah, that makes me also think about how that masculinity or that model of masculinity is passed down to the son. Yeah, Because Anna, like, is telling her son, you know, you need to protect your sister. So these ideas of, like, protectorship and, like, bravery, you know, these things, these traits are sort of passed down to the son who Mm -hmm. sort of takes on that burden of trying to take care of uh, his sister. And so... And the curandero, you know, he's... He twice has the opportunity to show vulnerability, right, in the face of fear. Yeah. And twice says no, that he doesn't fear anything, right? And so it's, mm. it does really reproduce that sort of uh, macho uh, Latinx figure, right, that, that, you know, that doesn't allow himself to feel, right? Um, you know, and that's sort of contrasting that to, you know, the sort of saint on the pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. That it's either you're dead or, you know, you're this full of stereotypes, right? And so that that dynamic uh, was really troubling in regards to sort of seeing how um, the curanderos figure was painted so negatively by the church too, um, you know. And that's something too that I think. Um, so we have we have Patricia who does seek out the curandero, right? And and that's you know there's nothing 
sort of said about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when we have Anna sort of white body going into the church, that seems to be the outlet, um, sort of the, the accepted outlet, right, to go back to the church and sort of really reinforcing the religion into sort of as a Latinx person to, to find solutions, right? Even mm-hmm. though she's not religious, she's still going to go to the church, right? So, and then on the flip side, when you seek other avenues, those are av- other avenues are made to feel sort of uh, non-authentic or sort mm-hmm. of dangerous, evil, um, especially just what we get to when sort of the the, um, the aspect that the curandero uses them as bait, yeah. right? He's trying to save them, but all of a sudden that he's being looked like they asked him for help right and he's helping them and yet she doesn't like the way he's helping them mm. so i it, there's so there's really troubling that sort of um sort of labor it, it takes me back to like uh crash right that you know sandra bullock is like you know doesn't like the way you know michael peña's character looks or how he's helping right but he's there, they called him like you know so it's just like what I, i'm thinking about like what are the implications around latinx labor right the, Mm-hmm. All right, so to kind of um, wrap up here, I have a couple things I want to throw out. So we've had now decades of Latina feminists um, pushing against and even just carving new pathways um, where we've had in the in the history, in our history, in our mythology making a kind of toxic masculinity that's positioned mm-hmm. La Llorona as someone who uh, is not only weeping, but weeping because she's drowned her children, because her her hubby is drinking and womanizing and to get him back, you know, the, but also La Malinche, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and in many ways as a kind of allegory, it's La Llorona on a kind of whole other level where the children that are betrayed are us, mm-hmm. right? Mestizo Mexicans, um and you know the kind of the that myth really being functioning as a way to kind of warn us from rebelling cuz like children like being treated like children don't go out at night don't go near bodies of water well you as a people don't rebel because if you do something bad's going to happen to you mm-hmm. but so uh Cisneros, right women hollering mm-hmm. creek so with all of that in the kind of in our minds, how are we rereading or reading this movie? Katie, do you want to start? Oh, start okay. Yeah. Um, I haven't thought through this yet, actually. Um, I don't know. I guess in terms of, I think, the feeling that we're left with, I think it seems significant to me that the, the at the end of the film we get this glimpse of La Llorona sort of as human again mm-hmm. when we're in the attic and like that haunted mansion style kind of boxes moving around type thing that like didn't really work kind of like the rest of the film and unfortunately but it that seems interesting to me like it's perhaps a gesture at at trying to sort of underscore that indeed la llorona is sort of misunderstood or mischaracterized by this rage um and i always find the characterization of women of color's rage interesting given that for so long it's been sort of encouraged to be suppressed and silenced in, in multiple ways but i think that because the film then sort of ends with her transforming back into this monstrous figure when she looks into the mirror and then kind of, in a lot of ways, just kind of combusts, there's something to it that doesn't feel like an actual exploration of La Llorona necessarily, but instead a way of thinking about how does one apply a recognizable face to the conventions of the horror genre, but 
unfortunately does so in such a way that it's almost missing the heart that we would see in something like the Gothic, where you feel like you have a, a stronger subtext there. For me, it felt very missing. Um, and I think, to be honest, some of that might in part be by the bad graphics that she kind of appears in these in these moments that she doesn't really look believable. And I don't think you can ever really fully suspend your remembrance that like you are watching a horror movie. But I think, too, I almost wish they had extended that first section longer and given us a little yes. bit more time to get to know her other than sort of within the context of this of this well-known moment, because I think that could have perhaps aided us in having some kind of compassion for her in a way that it feels significant that she's just sort of rendered voiceless in a lot of ways, aside from maybe one or two lines, um, but voiceless also in the way in which we only really hear her doing that muttering and then kind of mm-hmm. appearing and then only existing really to, to disappear. Yeah, um, and to sort of uh, piggyback off of sort of both uh, Aldama and Katie, what you've said here, um, and thinking about Cisneros' woman hollering creek, I mean, we have our protagonist, Cleophilus, who's uh, living with a, an abusive husband and who has a family with an abusive husband and she spends a lot of time sort of reflecting on uh, La Llorona and, and live, she lives right by a creek and so she does a lot of you know thinking about how she fits into that sort of narrative and towards the end of the story as you know she is able to escape uh, and through the power of community with other women uh, mm-hmm. and other uh, Latinx women and so we have like a subversion of, of hollering. Hollering becomes joyful instead of something that's painful. And I think that the film sort of reinscribes painful, uh, you know, painful remembrance of trauma. And, uh, you know, I mean, when I saw the film, uh, I'm going to be honest. I mean, when I saw La Llorona, I was like, wow, she's really she's demonic. She's mm-hmm. scary. She's monstrous. And um, yeah, and I think in some ways there are moments when we're like, this feels silly. But then other moments when I'm like, you know, this is also uh, either she's she could be read as like horrific uh, or comical. And I think in Cisneros's, you know, story, short story, Woman Hollering Creek, there is a horror and the horror is the everyday. But here the horror seems to be situated as something that's like supernatural. And so I, I don't know, I think it's a little bit dangerous in considering how the Latina body is sort of she's not afforded the same agency as in, you know, as a, we see in Woman Hollering Creek. Yeah. She's just read as sort of monstrous as other as is just something that is out for revenge. She's an object. Maybe mm-hmm. they should have brought Sandra in to help. Right. right? <laughs> but yeah, there's a moment when you do see um the gestures toward these are women single moms Mm -hmm. who in the system are automatically incapable of being providers. And so there are moments when the film is gesturing toward that. And then when they come together finally to fight, you know, for the children, um, you know, there's another moment, but then, you know, we have the curandero, we have the kind of moment when the male has to be present mm-hmm. again. Well, I thought, okay, good. He's gone. Now we can just have the <laughs> women kind of battling and, you know, but yeah, I think you're right. I think we need a Sandra in there. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also, he passes her the cross, right. And then, uh, Linda Cardinelli, she stabs La Llorona with the cross. So it's like, it's almost a reinscription of sort of traditional Catholic, 
messages that are like mm-hmm. the heteronormative family stays together through like in religion in a mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. um i don't know i thought that was really interesting, interesting. The, the use of the cross and then the brown uh, woman's body is completely just torn apart yeah. um we see that's just i mean there's like it's like 30 seconds where she's just being like her body's just literally being ripped apart and she turns black and mm-hmm. like gooey and it's just it's like hor- yeah carlos last words yeah uh Oh wow! Okay, um, I just think too like the the whole narrative and thinking about La Llorona it, the, in this film, she's there to sort of bring up Anna, right? That all of this is to to hold Anna up and to sort mm-hmm. of uh, identify and be empathetic with her, right? Because there's no development at the beginning, right? I mean, if you just have that little snippet, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. the kid's lost and the Llorona is drowning them, right? And, and going back to that scene in, in the mirror where Yorona is giving human characteristics now, right, that she sees herself in the mirror and sees monstrosity, right, that she sees herself being represented as a monster, mm-hmm. right, and therefore that she herself doesn't even have empathy for her own struggles, right, and so the mirror breaks and she goes back to wanting to kill, right. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think that they've taken this, the myth, right, and they've made it into her just hunting kids, right, um, who disobey, Right, and when we get this snippet with Anna, who becomes the white savior, essentially, right? That yeah. she 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 gets to be the one held up. She gets the one to survive. She gets to be the one to tell her story, where La Llorona is have again being having her story told for her over and over and over. Again. Great. Well, um, thank you all for joining Professor Latinx uh, to talk about the curse of La Llorona. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah.